Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, everyone makes worse decisions, I think, when they're tired or stressed out. I mean, if you ask me something at 7 o'clock at night, you're going to get a completely different answer than if you'd asked me that at 10 o'clock in the morning. I think there's a lot of that going around because of the pandemic. That's why it's such an interesting perspective on Fraud Prevention Month that we are going to talk about this morning. Joining us now is University of Waterloo psychology professor, Dr. Christine Perdon, and Director of Fraud Mitigation and Strategy at Interact, Rachel Jollicker. Uh, to talk more about how this is impacting people. Thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the psychological aspect of this, Dr. Perdon. So is this something that you are hearing more about? Are people more susceptible to fraud right now? I think that uh, when we're stressed and anxious, we're very threat sensitive. And so I think that, uh, and the last thing we need is another problem. So think that fraudsters know this and are able to take advantage by introducing a threat and then, oh, a solution to that threat. And I think because we're just so focused on, oh my gosh, I need to fix this, that we may be more susceptible to accepting their quote solution than we might be in other times. All right. Is this something that you've noticed at Interact as well, Rachel? Absolutely. We've seen that there has been an increase uh, in fraud attempts and uh, we did send out a survey to Canadians recently, and and uh, six out of ten Canadians do admit they feel like there's been an increase, uh, there's, there's more and more uh, different attempts going at them day to day trying to get them to send money or to disclose uh, confidential information. And so is it mainly on the phone? Like, Rachel, is there a, is there a particular way they're trying to get money out of people? They're not discriminating. They're opportunistic. And, and when I say they, those are the criminals. So they're going at you uh, online, via phone, text. And, and, you know, it's not surprising because we are spending more and more time online. We're isolated. So these criminals are just coming at you fast and furious. And we've kind of started to be on autopilot because all this information is coming at us. We're working online. Uh, some of us are doing virtual school. And it's, it's easy to get caught up in the moment, in, in the urgency, and, uh, and just react. So it is working. However, Canadians are feeling confident that, you know, after being victimized, they, they are better equipped to identify a fraud or a scam. Right. Dr. Perdon, that's what I was wondering, too. Is it because we're now living so much of our lives online, whether it's for work or just connecting with people, are we becoming savvier in any way? I think that, uh, we, I mean, certainly the more time we spend online, uh, the more, in some ways, more vulnerable we are because the more likely, uh, you know, if the fraudsters can, can attack us that way. Uh, but I do think that um, we're, we're learning a lot. Like, there's a lot of really good education out there. 
and we're starting to become because we're we're used to what uh, a normal problem looks like versus what the fraudsters say is a problem. I think we're we're starting to get better at discerning potentially. So we can we're we're doing better at kind of sorting out what's real and what's not. I think so. I think that uh, if I think that where we can be more vulnerable is if we're stressed and anxious, we're on the computer, and then suddenly we get a note saying your computer has a virus, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to my my son has to do his exam, and I have to have this important meeting. I can't afford for this computer to be down, and so we may act very quickly to try to get that problem neutralized, even though it's not an actual real problem. It's a fraudster. Right. So I, I think there's a bit of both happening. Now, Rachel, we heard yesterday here in BC that health officials are also warning seniors in particular uh, because of this vaccine rollout and how that's going to be done over the phone, that they are more, they feel that there's probably going to be some attempts at some fraudulent activity made there. Is that something do you think people need to be on guard against? Well, I think you uh, you raise a good point. So there's there's the new vaccine. Um, our survey demonstrated that seniors were not um, worried or did not feel that they were that targeted uh, by scams, but that could be because they're not spending so much time online. However, uh, if you look at it, that there's an opportunity that the criminals could take with this vaccine, um, people being, com- the government communicated, communicating uh, to seniors through telephones, then yes, they will take that opportunity and target uh, seniors. Absolutely. And we've seen that anytime that there's anything that comes out so close to Christmas. I know the PS5 was very popular and you couldn't get it anywhere. Uh, again, we saw criminals going online and, and posting fake advertisement, uh, trying to, to entice people to send money to buy those products. Right. So what should people remember then, Rachel? Like, what are the things that you will never kind of get asked on the phone or that, that Interact is not going to come after you for? Well, Interact never calls customers, so that, that should be your first tip. But also, I think we need to take a step back. So when someone is, uh, if you have an organization, or I'll give you an example, like the CRA is, is threatening to break down your door with their warrant, and they're going to arrest you, well, you know, uh, you have to stop for a moment. Nothing is that critical. No one's going to cut off your power. Um, and just kind of do a little bit more research. So scrutinize, is that really the case? And and if if you do act on that, I you don't have to worry about it. Just make sure that you you report it to the police and maybe report it to the the Canadian Anti Fraud Center and uh, and notify your bank and and it's going to be fine. Uh, but really, just take a moment and uh, and don't be impulsive. And that should probably save you 99% of all fraud attempts out there. Dr. Pernod, they really play on our fear, don't they? Like they, that's where they get us, that we don't want to miss something. We don't want to lose anything. And then we become afraid and we make that bad decision. Yeah, so when we're anxious, so the, there's the fight-flight response, and it's geared to make us be able to flee or fight danger effectively. And it's really uh, um, effective for us, and it's, it's an essential mechanism. But in these kinds of cases, what happens is there's the introduction of threat, and what happens is that our minds become very threat uh, sensitive and threat focused. And so we may start to remember times people were arrested for fraud or people had their electricity cut off um, instead of referencing it, really good information about how fraudsters work. So then we start thinking, oh my gosh, maybe this could be real. And 
So, and, and of course, we're very driven to neutralize that sense of anxiety and intervene before anything bad happens because we think it'll be a way worse problem if my electricity gets cut off. So, yes, we can act really fast in what we need to do. So, I, uh, absolutely what Rachel's suggesting is just take that pause to override that immediate threat response and step back, engage your frontal lobes, engage your, your critical thinking skills and act rather than react to these kinds of situations. Well, thank you very much to both of you for the advice this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That is Rachel Jolly-Kerr, who is the Director of Fraud Mitigation and Strategy at Interact Corp, and Dr. Christine Perdon, who's the Psychology Researcher at the University of Waterloo. It is Fraud Prevention Month, and given that we're also talking about a vaccination rollout, a lot of which will be done, appointments on the phone, that kind of thing, there are concerns that this will lead to increased cases of fraud. A lot of this is all cyber-related, too, though. The number one reported incident of fraud in 2020 was was spear phishing, essentially getting you online. Second highest was romance related scams, and the third highest was investment scams. And that was we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars just on those three things alone. So it's important for seniors in particular to know that you know nobody is going to be calling you and asking for your. Um, health information or your, you know, contact information or, or, or even banking information for that matter. When you go to make the appointment, you will provide that information uh, to, I think it's just your healthcare number at this point and your name and address that they need. The rest of it, people will not be calling you and asking you for that, but there'll be lots more discussion on this. I love this next story because it's so cool. A lot of information about COVID-19 in the Lower Mainland is literally getting flushed down the toilet. That is actually where Metro Vancouver is measuring COVID-19 viral loads. They have this amazing new tool that actually lets you see the results by region. Let's learn more about this. Joining us now is Dr. Natalie Pristajecki, environmental microbiologist at the BC Center for Disease Control's Public Health Laboratory and a clinical assistant professor in pathology and laboratory medicine at UBC. Dr. Pristajecki, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. This is kind of cool. How does this work? Um, well, we've been doing this work since um, since the first wave of the pandemic in May. And so we process wastewater, we filter it, um, and we look using the exact same tools that we use for clinical diagnosis, we look for the virus. Um, and so we can detect and count the amount of virus in a volume of wastewater. And so this gives a, um, a tool that allows us to understand how much virus is in the community. And it allows us to survey at a community scale as opposed to an individual scale like we do with the clinical testing. So what is that testing telling us then? Well, it's, you know, we've been doing this work uh, since um, we've been doing it for all five wastewater treatment facilities since the fall, and that's when the cases were at, were sort of at their peak. Um, and not surprisingly, we found the virus in all the five wastewater treatment facilities on most days that we sampled. This data matches what we've seen with the daily counts in all the different areas. So we see that as the counts go up, the wastewater counts go up, and as they go down, the wastewater counts go down as well. Some jurisdictions have seen it, um, the wastewater data to be predictive, sort of tell it, saying that there is going to be a spike. In our hands, we haven't seen that yet. We just see a nice concordance between the case data and the wastewater data. Okay, that is so fascinating then because, you know, there's always these questions about are we testing enough? Are we really getting an accurate picture of what's going on in our communities? And you're saying by testing the wastewater, we can figure out that our numbers are actually pretty accurate. That, that's correct, yes. 
so how long does the virus exist in the wastewater for? Um, well, you know, this isn't a particularly hardy virus. And the first thing I really wanted to emphasize is the, way, the virus that we find in the wastewater cannot cause an infection. It is, um, it's shed from the host, so it's shed from the patient. About half of patients will shed the virus in their feces. And even from the host when it's being shed, um, it's, it's not infectious. It's just pieces of the virus that's left over and that the body's shedding. Okay. So um, its stability in wastewater, how long it lasts in wastewater, is probably not very long. It's probably on the order of a couple of days compared to a virus like norovirus, which can survive for weeks or months, in fact. So um, it won't last, the signal doesn't last a long time, but it can tell us about what's happening right now. Right. So how often do you test then? We're testing weekly. Right. So how long do you foresee yourself doing this? You know, I think that, um, you know, there's no end date in sight. I, I foresee that this will happen until we see our case counts go down and that it's no longer a useful tool. Um, but this is going to be a very important tool sort of as we see cases going up and down, as we start to see um, sort of the pandemic coming to an end. It'll give us a chance to look at communities where we think there's no more COVID and be able to confirm that with what we see in their wastewater. So is this a tool then that the health authorities have been able to use? Like, are you able to point out that, have you guys noticed this over here? Like, perhaps there's more virus over here that you didn't know about? Well, we haven't really had any of those instances where we see surprising results. But we have shared the data with the health authorities and they have access to it. Right. So this is a great tool because sometimes people might not always feel comfortable going and getting tested, but this way you can actually tell ahead of time, right? Absolutely. But I would encourage you to have any symptoms of COVID-19 that you certainly should go and get a test. Right. This Now, I remember hearing about them doing this in other jurisdictions as well. So is this being done all over the world? Yeah. I mean, it's being done in pretty much every, well, most of the industrialized countries, Netherlands, China, Australia, France, and across Canada, uh, there's researchers all across the can- uh, Canada and almost all provinces doing this kind of work. So it really has taken off. Now, is this new for COVID-19 or is this something that has been used for other things as well? You know, for an infectious disease, this is relatively new. We started to do this work with Metro Vancouver as a collaboration over two years ago. Um, we were looking at other types of viruses that cause diarrhea and whether or not we could see them in the wastewater, in the influent, and the effluent. So we were able to quickly um, spin our existing method to use it for COVID, but it hasn't been widely adopted for that kind of purpose previously. Where it has been used is for the detection of illicit drugs. And so there have been surveys across Canada to understand, using wastewater, uh, the amount of illicit drug use in any given community. Right. So this is a concept of what we, this is what we call wastewater-based epidemiology, and we suspect that this will really take off even after the pandemic for other um, microorganisms. Right. I, was, I remember hearing about that one, checking for illicit drugs, and this is how it's done. So do you think COVID-19 has really changed the research world and, and how you look at things? Absolutely. It, it gives lots of opportunities for, for, for new ways of doing things, and we expect that wastewater surveillance is here to stay. Um, we're already in discussions on other projects that we can be doing, um, and I think that it really opens up our eyes as to how we can use um, this wastewater-based epidemiology to conduct uh, surveillance. Well, this, you must be fascinating at a, like a cocktail party when we're allowed to go to a cocktail party again. But yeah, do definitely. You, do you explain it's an to friends? Topic. Yeah, do you have to explain to friends what it is that you do? Um, yeah, I sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I am the topic of uh, of interesting conversation. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. But you know what? Your work is fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
Fantastic. Thank you. That is Dr. Natalie Pristajecki, an environmental microbiologist at the BC Center for Disease Control Public Health Laboratory and a clinical assistant professor in pathology and laboratory medicine at UBC. They are working with Metro Vancouver by testing viral loads in our wastewater. And by doing that, they can compare it to our actual COVID-19 case numbers. And they can see that, yeah, the case numbers that are being reported by the testing that's being done are pretty accurate and representative of what they see in our wastewater. In some jurisdictions, they can almost be predictive in terms of, you know what, we haven't had a lot of testing done in this neighborhood, but we seem to be getting a higher viral load over here or finding out that perhaps not enough testing is being done. But they said here in BC, what they have found, or in Metro Vancouver, I should say, is that it's pretty representative of what is going on, that the numbers accurately reflect what they are finding in our wastewater. That's so cool, isn't it? All right, still ahead for us on the show today. Uh, We are actually going to talk more about our vaccination plan. I know there's a lot of questions and almost some controversy in some cases about the fact that we are pushing that second dose and we're doing something that is not being done anywhere else in Canada, at least not yet. One thing we talk a lot about here in BC is fish farms and wild salmon populations. I think so many people here are very passionate about that subject. There's a new documentary that is being released on YouTube this evening, and it's all about the salmon in our backyards. The man behind the Urban Salmon Project is nature photographer Fernando Lessa, resident of North Vancouver, and joins us now to talk about this latest work. Fernando, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. How did you come up with this idea to do something like this? Uh, in 2016, I was living uh, at the time um, in East Vancouver. <coughs> and I remember walking in the, on the street and seeing those uh, yellow signs by the rain drains that shows where there is a salmon stream or there was a salmon stream. And I got intrigued with that and went online, did some research and, and find out stars, but find out information that we do get someone in the city. So I decided to see by myself and that's how everything started. So you actually read one of those signs. I know exactly which signs you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have them uh, all over Metro Vancouver. And they're, they're a really good reminder because we do have uh, salmon streams and also uh, shows where there was in some place where there was a salmon stream. So they're very important. Right. So you decided to do a documentary about it. And so who did you talk to? What did you look at? Well, um, I went to check and see my first salmon and I went with my camera. And I was just amazed because I saw, I found a big chum salmon, like more than eight kilos in a super shallow stream. And almost out of the water. So I said, well, we have this here. Maybe we have somewhere else. So I went to the, for a second stream and then a third and, and keep going. And at the time, I started uh, showing the pictures to some of my friends and colleagues. And that's where I noticed that people were not aware that we do have someone in our backyard. And I realized, oh, well, this is something, this, this is a story here. It has got to be documented. Right. So where did you start? Like, did you talk to experts? Like, who did you talk to about this? Well, I'm a biologist. Um, and, and back home in Brazil, I was already uh, working as a nature documentarist. So uh, initially, it was, a, it was a, started as a personal project. But then once I got more pictures, I connected stream keepers and um, with the salmon community. And they really support me, uh, especially in finding the best location, best practice. Sorry, best practice, how to approach the fish and stuff. 
So yeah, I, I had a, a lot of support from from specialists and the academic community. Yeah, the Streamkeepers amaze me. They do such incredible work out there in the communities. Do you think a, a, a lot of people are like you, Fernando, or like you were, and that they don't realize all this work that goes into this? Well, I it's it's hard, right? It's um the 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 summer stream they're 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 hard because most of the year you don't see the adult salmon in there. So I guess a lot of people they see those shallow streams and they don't even know there's life there. So probably they don't even know that they could be restored and someone could come back. So yeah, I, I believe that most people if they know they would they would really appreciate and support or sometimes even get their their get their hands dirty. I think you're absolutely right about that. So where can people see your documentary? So the premiere is going online um, this uh, Thursday, March 4 at 7 p.m. It's going to be a YouTube live uh, free event. So it starts with a presentation from Professor Moore from uh, SFU, followed by the film and a Q&A. And uh, if people access the website, urbansalmon.com, uh, there you can find the trailer for the documentary and, and all the links for, for, for people to access it. What a neat project. Listen, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Thank you. Good luck with that. That's Fernando Lessa, a professional nature photographer and biologist, but he has worked on this documentary about urban salmon. So you can check out the website, urbansalmon.com, for more information on that. You you know those little yellow signs that he's talking about. You see them all over the Lower Mainland. Uh, but yeah, stop and read them sometimes, and you'll find that there's a very interesting biological history right there in your own backyard. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. The addition of the AstraZeneca and Serum Institute of India viral vector vaccine allows us to be more agile in where and how we can immunize people here in BC. Encouraging news yesterday, right? On the vaccine distribution front, that was Dr. Bonnie Henry. Frontline and essential workers may now be getting their shot sooner than expected. And the timeline right across the board sounds like it is getting accelerated. So joining us for more on the schedule, how this rollout is going to work, is Vancouver Coastal Health Chief Medical Health Officer, Dr. Patricia Daly. Dr. Daly, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Simi. Now, I think the one number one thing I'm getting the most questions about is kind of the pushing out of the second dose and, and, and increasing that window. Can you explain the rationale behind that? Sure. Uh, we have been doing research on the effectiveness of the, second, of the first dose of vaccine since we've rolled out the campaign uh, here in Canada. And there's been lots of good data from other countries around the world. And what we've seen is that one dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine is very, very effective Uh, Within two to three weeks of that first dose, it's about 90% effective in preventing infection. And that's even among uh, frail elderly people living in long-term care. In fact, in Vancouver Coastal Health, we really stopped all long-term care outbreaks after we vaccinated residents and staff of long-term care facilities with a single dose. So based on on that data, some of which is generated here in Canada, uh, we know that that it's it's appropriate to to push out the second dose. It's actually recommended uh, for many vaccination programs that delaying a booster dose leads to a stronger booster effect as well. And we have no concerns with a 16-week interval 
Uh, we believe the first dose will be effective and that there won't be a waning of that protection uh, before the second dose. So it, what it does is allows us to give more people the first dose of vaccine, which will allow us to more quickly contain the spread of the pandemic virus in BC. So we can hit herd immunity much faster that way. That's right. With the delaying of the, the second dose or the longer interval, rather, it's not really a delay. It's just changing the interval. Everyone will still get their second dose. And with the arrival of another vaccine, uh, we do know that we can anticipate that uh, adults will get vaccinated sooner. And that will uh, allow, we believe, will lead to a reduction in spread of the virus in the community. Starting with the older age groups is really to protect them against severe disease. But to stop the spread, we really need to move up vaccination of younger adults because those are the groups where we're seeing most transmission of the virus. Do you expect that other jurisdictions will do this? Because right now, BC is the only province going this route. Well, Quebec has already done that. So they did it uh, um, before others. Uh, I do anticipate that we will get further guidance from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization who reviewed this data. We anticipate that's coming as early as this week. And depending on uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, that statement, I think you might see other provinces make these uh, changes as well. But we're not the first to do it. Quebec has already done it. So um, let's talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine here as well, because there were some questions about that yesterday. Does Vancouver Coastal Health have a plan for using the AstraZeneca vaccine? Well, this, this will be a provincial plan. We, the, the vaccine was only approved last week, and we were uh, made aware that there will be a vaccine coming here to uh, British Columbia. And so the, uh, our, our experts will be making recommendations about how to use that vaccine. It will be approved for use in those 18 to 64 years of age, so not for the frail elderly. It's an excellent vaccine. Uh, uh, it, uh, that's why Health Canada has approved it for use here. And so it gives us the opportunity to think about uh, some younger age groups, essential workers and others, uh, where we've seen a transmission of the virus and to, um, and to target those groups. So those discussions are occurring this week. We expect the first shipment to arrive uh, sometime later next week. Uh, you mentioned long-term care outbreaks in Vancouver Coastal Health kind of coming to an end because of the vaccinations. So when will long-term care home restrictions be lifted? Well, we, we still, uh, we've advised everyone, even those vaccinated, that until we have better data, that indicates that those vaccinated are not only protected from disease, but uh, that vaccination does uh, reduce the risk of, of asymptomatic infection and transmission of the virus. And, and there's more and more data that is supporting that. Until we know that, we do, for example, require all of our staff in long-term care and in our hospitals as well to continue to wear uh, the appropriate personal protective equipment and masks to not come to work if they're sick. So we're not going to... Uh, uh, turn off those measures until we have uh, further evidence that the vaccine can, pre- um, can both prevent disease and transmission. But I will say that we've been working with our facilities to ensure that essential and social visitors are permitted for residents in long-term care. So can we see perhaps more visitation being allowed? Well, there is a process now for family members uh, who uh, may not have been permitted to have a visitor to their loved one. They can Uh, escalate those requests, but uh, we are actively working with our facilities to ensure that those requests are being met. It's still not opening up facilities to all visitors uh, as we had before the pandemic, but we hope that that will at least give uh, residents of long-term care the type of interaction that they may have been lacking during the, the most severe stages of the pandemic last fall. Do we have an idea, Dr. Daly, of where we will be going to get vaccinated? I mean, when you talk about all these people, they can't all just go to their doctor's office. 
No, that's right. The uh, Well, the first rollout is, of course, to uh, those over 80 years of age. And uh, there will be clinics in all communities across the province in Vancouver Coastal. They'll be in uh, Richmond, Vancouver, the North Shore. We have rural sites. And, and the locations of those clinics will be available very soon on our website before people uh, begin to call in on March 8th to book their appointments. So that the, the specific clinic sites will be made available. And then as the a vaccination campaign rolls out to younger age groups. There will be other um, mass clinic locations that will be announced as well. So this is not going to be rolled out like um, uh, influenza vaccine um, in all doctors' offices and pharmacies. And that's because uh, most of the vaccine we're using is still the Pfizer and Moderna, which is, is uh, stored at very uh, uh, low temperatures in special freezers. So uh, we do have to uh, offer it in special clinics. But the locations of those clinics will be announced very soon. But what is the schedule like right now for you and your staff and just trying to get all of this, all these details worked out? Well, this is an effort of, uh, that the entire health authority is focused on, uh, getting the staff for the clinics, uh, support for, uh, for training of those who will be working in the clinics. And of course, at the same time, we are still managing the pandemic, doing very ca- uh, careful follow-up of every single case in contact in Vancouver Coastal Health. All of our lab efforts are still focused on that. Our public health staff are working seven days a week to continue to do that work, even as we roll out the vaccination campaign. But it's, it's amazing to see the, the entire health authority really step up to, uh, to plan for this. And we're, and we're getting uh, offers from retired nurses and physicians and others who want to assist with the vaccination campaign. So that's great news. What do you say to people then, Dr. Daly, who still have so many questions, right? And they're concerned. They, they want to know where those clinics are. They want to know why are we pushing out the, you know, the vaccination past when the makers recommend it. They just have, still have so many questions. How do you respond to all that? Well, we have really good information available on the Vancouver Coastal Health website, on the BC Centre for Disease Control website. We know there are questions. Uh, we encourage people who, um, who have questions to go to those websites if there are people considering vaccination and have questions to talk to their family physician if they have any questions. Uh, we feel pretty comfortable with the, the changing of the, second, the interval between the first and second dose. We think that's very evidence-based. And, uh, uh, and in terms of the clinic locations, just to reassure people, those will be uh, publicly uh, posted very soon. Certainly before the call center opens next Monday, people will be aware of where the clinic locations are in their community. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Sammy. That's Dr. Patricia Daly. She's the Vancouver Coastal Health Chief Medical Health Officer talking about the work that's being done right now to hammer out this plan. I know there's a lot of concern about the pushing out of the window to get that second dose. That's like the number one thing I've gotten emails about. And people feel like, well, Pfizer and Moderna say you're not supposed to do that. They're still recommending 21 days. We've talked about this extensively. And keep in mind that the research that is being done on the efficacy of doing that and how it's okay is research that is provided and data that is provided by Pfizer and Moderna. What researchers are doing is they're digging deeper into it uh, to see what the efficacy is, to see where where the problems are, where they might be able to you know push it out a little bit. So they're not making up the numbers here. They are doing this with data supplied from the manufacturers of these vaccines. And it's something that, you know what, that is talked about in a lot of other jurisdictions too. We hope that that will at least give uh, residents of long-term care the type of interaction that they may have been lacking during the, the most severe stages of the pandemic last fall. 
That's Vancouver Coastal Health Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Patricia Daly. She was on with us about half an hour ago, and she was talking about some of the steps that they are taking to now facilitate visitations in long-term care homes. So joining us now to talk about the vaccine rollout update and the impact it will have on those in long-term care is the CEO of BC Care Providers, Terry Lake. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Simi. Now, do you feel better hearing the vaccination plan yesterday and what that means for long-term care homes? Well, it's certainly good for uh, those living in congregate uh, independent living settings. So, you know, if you think about um, seniors housing, there's a, a continuum that from independent living where, uh, you know, you have a shared dining room and shared facilities. And uh, we we're pleased to see that uh, independent living residents were moved up as well as the staff that are going in uh, to provide home health services. So that's all really good and, and uh, you know, very appropriate. Essential visitors to um, family and friends in long-term care uh, receive the vaccine at the same time as uh, the residents. But there is uh, one gap that we hope to close, uh, Simi, and that are the uh, the social visitors. Because at the moment, if you're a social visitor visiting your, your mom or dad once a week um, and you're, say, 40 years old, you're not going to get the vaccine for quite some time, which still puts your relative, your loved one, in uh, care at uh, considerable risk because even though the vaccine is very effective, it's not 100% effective. So we're hoping uh, to discuss with Dr. Ballum the ability to move those social visitors uh, up uh, to get them vaccinated as soon as possible. Right. But do you, f- do you foresee the end inside or some kind of loosening of restrictions here then, Terry? I think people, some of those social visitors just need a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, of course. And so we've always, uh, you know, initially we thought family day, that was a little optimistic as a way, uh, a, a time when we could reunite families uh, that have loved ones in care. Uh, but now it's looking more like spring. March 21st uh, is quite reasonable because, as I said, the essential visitors, the residents, the staff, have essentially had their vaccinations uh, completed. Um, It just leaves that gap of social visitors, but with proper, of course, screening and the use of uh, personal protective equipment, you know, we do think that visitation can occur in in a very safe way. And we're grateful to the health authority operators, but also the contracted operators, that are, you know, pulling out all the stops uh, to uh, bring families together once again. And do you get a sense from the numbers that things are getting better in long-term care in terms of outbreaks and number of cases? No question. I mean, we had a, you know, one other one in a independent living, uh, assisted living complex yesterday in Mission. Uh, but that's um, been the first one in a while. So we're, we're down into the low double digits and sometimes getting below that in terms of current outbreaks and in long-term care and assisted living. So that's much better than we've been for a long time. And of course, the uh, number of people that are passing away from COVID in long-term care is drastically down as well. So it's a welcome relief. Uh, you know, people that have been working in long-term care have been working flat out for a year. And, um, you know, they deserve to see that light at the end yeah. of the tunnel. Uh, one of the things that also came up, Terry, was the, the cases that are still happening in long-term care. Like, why is that? And it was brought up that it really is staff turnover, that there is still quite a high rate of staff turnover. So you're getting new people coming in. Is that still an issue? Uh, that's not very common these days, uh, Simi. You know, the single site order posed some problems in terms of a lot of overtime. So uh, some people, you know, um, are uh, sick themselves. Uh, and so off work. 
Um, but we haven't had as much staff turnover, uh, although bringing new people on, of course, uh, it always involves uh, orientation and training. And, and uh, so there are there are some new people still coming into the sector. And, of course, the government is trying hard through their health career access program to add more people into the mix so that we can, um, you know, have a greater pool of, of, of people to pull from. Uh, but the vaccine isn't 100% effective. I think we must always remind ourselves that even someone vaccinated could still be susceptible. So, you know, if you're an essential visitor, you've been vaccinated, your loved one has been vaccinated, that's not a 100% guarantee that you can't pass on the virus. So I don't think we can let our guard down yet. And, um, you know, there's a temptation to do that, of course. It's just human nature. But I think we need to keep reminding people they, they still have to exercise caution. So true. Terry, thanks for your time. Thank you, Simi. Terry Lake, CEO of BC Care Providers. Light at the end of the tunnel if you haven't been able to visit a loved one. If you're not an essential visitor, but a social visitor, as Terry puts it, uh, they are working on plans to make that happen for long-term care homes. Well, if everything goes according to plan, junior hockey might be back in the near future. Now, that is welcome news as Western Hockey League teams outside here gear up for the new season. For more on the work that is left to be done in BC and what the season might look like, joining us now, Ron Toigo, the owner of the Vancouver Giants. Thanks for being with us this morning. Hey, good morning, Sammy. Thanks. You must be pretty happy to hear this. Well, yeah, it's uh, definitely you know, a step in the right direction, as they say, and um, you know we've still got to see what all the details are. But uh, I think I think the plan that we gave them was quite comprehensive and uh, covered off all the things they were looking for from a uh, you know a testing perspective, the the the, the uh, billeting perspective, the the bubble, and uh, and overall, I think it it it, was, it is a safe format, and um, but even even. The, the leagues that have been operating uh, in all sports have done a pretty good job of containing whatever virus was out there, and I think uh, we'll be able to do the same thing. So what is it going to be like? Is it similar to, say, what the NHL does right now? Well, um, well, the BCHL and, and us both have different versions. Our version has um, us. Uh, Vancouver will we'll go to Kamloops, and Prince George will go to Kamloops and stay in the hotels there and play out of the Kamloops Arena, and uh, Victoria will move to Col- Kelowna and play out of the Kelowna Arena, and w- the only travel will be between Kelowna and Kamloops. So pretty, um, you know, pretty contained, pretty, um, I'm not going to say easy to manage, but very manageable. And um, and it really is just over a two-month period. It's a 24-game schedule, so I think uh, we should be able to pull it off quite safely. And how do the players feel about this? Oh, they're ecstatic. It's, uh, um, I can say that, uh, you know, it, it, it's been very difficult for a lot of them. Uh, they, you know, and this is really what it's all about. It's all about the players getting them to play. The simplest thing for all of us to done was to just write off this season and uh, close the books on it and, uh, and stop some of the losses and then move on. But um, these players have, you know, they, they devoted their... Um, life to, to, to play hockey to their goal is to play pro hockey even though it, you know they're they're young and from where we're looking but uh, they put a lot of time in and to lose a year of development um, would be catastrophic um, for for all of them so we, we we felt we just had to come up with a plan to, to get it to work uh, we've been working with the government uh, to come up with methods of doing it uh, 
And, uh, you know, there's 22 communities throughout BC that have all these kids. They're great role models for their communities and uh, they're important fabric of, of BC and, and all of Canada. And uh, we're the last one to get going, but um, we uh, feel confident this, this thing can work. So how soon will, thing, will, the, will the wheels be set in motion here to get this going? Well, we're going to find out today exactly uh, what uh, Dr. Henry has approved. And we think it's probably going to be the last week in March or the first week in April that we should be able to get playing. And, uh, but, there's, you know, there's a lot of detail there. We're, 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 we're hoping to get some support financially to offset some of these costs um, throughout the province. And uh, really, um, our, our players were, were full of anxiety like all all the players in BCHLS until uh, the premier came out a couple of weeks ago and said that he was going to find a way to make this work. And uh, he really made a difference to all of them. And uh, there were players that were, you know, heading to the USHL or heading to Europe to go play. And then he came out and made that commitment. And I think it made a big difference for everybody. Do you think that's what broke the log jam is when the premier said, we're, we want to get this done? I, I really do. I think uh, when it came from him, uh, he's the leader of the province, and I think uh, people started to really start working on it, and things really did start happening after that. So do you foresee a time perhaps in this season where you might be able to get some people in the stands, or is that going to have to wait until next year? I don't think there's any chance of that, and uh, that's we, we hope it's for next year, and, uh, and we hope people come back. It's the other, That's the other um, uh, unknown is, how comfortable are people going to be coming back even when this is done or how many have come up with other patterns of their life, what they do. And so there's a lot of challenges um, ahead of us still. Um, but um, I think, I think it'll be okay. But, you know, we're like a lot of tourism industries. Um, we've got uh, lots of expenses and zero revenues. And uh, until, you know, this thing comes to thank God uh, they did come up with a vaccine and uh, it looks like, you know, by uh, next October, everybody should be vaccinated and things should be back to normal. And we're all certainly counting on that. You were talking about asking for some help. So is that the province, the provincial government, you're going to ask for some financial help? It's part of our, our uh, package, us, us with the BCHL, to help offset some of these costs. Nobody's expecting to be made whole in any way, shape or form, but just to mitigate um, what the extra things that we have to do are and... Um, I think uh, we've, we've had a decent audience with them, but we haven't had any um, feedback on exactly what's happening. All right, so more details coming today. We, we, yeah, we believe so, yes. All right, Ron, thanks so much for your time. All right, thanks, Amy. Take Best care. of luck. That's Ron Toygo, owner of the Vancouver Giants, talking about the return of junior hockey to British Columbia. Welcome news for him, of course, and other owners. More details coming today on exactly what has been approved, but the word did come from Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday that from what he has seen of the return to play plan, it has been approved by the province and they can start making those plans to get things going. And, you know, I had a lot of sympathy for those hockey players because as Ron Toygo pointed out, these are players who have spent years working their way up to this point and, a, and missing a year that is critical, right, to the long-term health of their career. And so they're going to get the opportunity to play in BC with two hubs, it sounds like, Kelowna and Kamloops, and just travel back and forth between those two communities.